so I get to continue the series, Small Book, Big Ideas. Um, so let's start. Let's dig in. So we're in 1 John. So if you're new here today and you're not sure what by the title, we're in the book of 1 John. So that's where we're going to head today. Um, it's a super small book. Uh, First John might seem really simple and small on the surface, but it's wonderful because it embraces love and faith and standing in God's promises, which makes it one of the more encouraging and helpful books. The Apostle John, who was writing this, was in Jesus's inner circle. So those 12 disciples that were chosen to walk and to learn with him while he was on earth. He would have spent about three and a half years with Jesus in the flesh. He would have heard things. He would have saw things. At the time of this writing, many Christians were experiencing a crisis of faith. Uh, because of the persecution and the false teachings, some had returned to Judaism, and others were kind of floundering around confused because of these Gnostics and these messages that maybe Jesus was not fully human, maybe he was not actually the Son of God. So others were also wrestling with loving one another and getting along. I think we understand what that looks like. And others struggled with these cultural pressures to worship Roman Empire. So what I love about this theme that we can really apply all the time um, is this love over hate emphasis and focusing on the gospel versus the world's message, which I think are critical themes for Christians today. Division and offense and separation are like rampant in our society. So this could be because of racial issues, cultural, political, or any other differences. But this book keeps reminding us to keep Christ at the center of all of those interactions. And instead of feeling hatred or casting anger on somebody who may not look or vote or believe or act a certain way that you do, we choose to put love first. And although the culture around us encourages us to be driven by self, by money, by lust, by pride, John is urging us to cling to the message of the cross instead. So, so far we've talked about three of the reasons that John has written this letter. He's writing these things so that our joy may be complete and so that you may not sin and that there's going to be others who will deceive us. So now I'm going to pick up today and 1 John chapter 3, 1 to 3. So if you've got your Bibles or your electronic devices, I would love for you to follow along. If not, it's going to be right there on the screen because we like to make it easy. Behold, what manner of love that Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So, love. <laughs> what a complicated word. I remember thinking that I knew what love was. What it looked like, what it felt like, what it acts like, until I discovered God's love for the first time in my life. This real love 
this truly profound love. I don't think that there is a subject that is so universally treated as the subject of love. Certainly, it is the theme of more songs and more movies than any other subject. We talk about it all the time, right? Love for our girlfriend, love for our boyfriend, our wife, our husband, our parents, our children, our friends, even our love for God. Why do we talk about love? Why is it this major theme? And it's simply because as human beings, we crave real love. We would actually almost do anything for it. Years ago, Mother Teresa was being interviewed by Time Magazine, and she said something extremely profound. She said this, our hunger for love is much more difficult than our hunger for bread, for food. Like, it's, it's that strong. One researcher said that our greatest fear that people have is that one, they will never be loved for who they are, and they will never be able to give unconditional love to another person. I also read a list from a doctor, from a physician, listing several emotions that produce disease. The very first on that list was fear, The second was frustration, followed by rage and resentment and hatred and jealousy and envy and self-centeredness and ambition. And this doctor said all of these could be cured by a single antidote, and that was love. The The most significant love I think most of us will ever experience is our first love. And that love is often the one that our parents give to us or parents give to their children. This seems to be that this bakes or breaks a human being. To know the parent is close by and and will never leave you, will never walk out, will always care for me, it's this wonderful foundation. And sadly, I do know not everybody gets that. But I do remember my daughter when she was little She would look at me and she'd say to me, will you love me forever, mom? Will you be my best friend forever, mom? And I loved when she asked that question because I absolutely love answering it, right? But I tell you that to say she was so young. She was three years old when she started saying that. At that part, they know they need love. They need this real love and to know that they can hold on to it. But the greatest discovery you could ever make in your life is the day that you discover how much God loves you. There's nothing like it. We just sang about it. There's just nothing like it. And let me put it this way. He knows everything about you and still loves you. That's the most amazing thing to me. In fact, I think that his love can cure a person from almost any brokenheartedness or deep wounds of rejections from any past relationships. I believe that. Dwight L. Moody was a pastor and an evangelist from Chicago. He said the love of God is the most transforming truth that there is. He went on his own journey to take the Bible and to trace every single incident of love of God in the Bible. 
and he walked away from that saying these words. I know of no other truth in the whole Bible that ought to come home to us with such power and tenderness as that of the love of God. And there is no truth in the Bible that Satan would so much like to blot out as that same truth. So here's my question. Has God's love transformed you? I know it saved you, but has it changed you? Does it make a difference to you personally? On a daily basis, does the love of God change the way that you process your thoughts? The way you speak your words, the things that you might do, the way you might spend your money? Well, the first three verses of 1 John, John helps us inspect God's love. And he gives us these four features, these four attributes of God's love. And there are many more than just these four, but these are the ones that were remarkable to John in these scriptures. And each one of these truths, I am praying that you will let God's love into your heart, like transform your heart. Picture it like we are opening a curtain and a light is gonna flood into the room with each and every truth. We keep pulling that curtain open just a little bit more. And that's what we're gonna do with these four things today. So, number one, God's love is incredible. John wants us to know that the love of God is incredible. Look how he puts it. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Now, the word behold isn't a word we use every day. It's an older word. I doubt very much you woke up this morning and said, behold, it is I, and got out of the room. And if you did, well, you're a little weird because it is an older, older word, right? Uh, but it simply means to observe, um, to see something, or we might even say in a modern word, word uh, or way, check it out. Right, this statement of wonder, it's a statement of amazement. It's like saying, have you ever seen anything like this before? So for example, Disney is a behold moment for many children. When we took our kids to Disneyland a few years ago, it's a fairly long journey, right? For, especially for little ones. You know, from the taxi to the plane to the ride, uh, the bus ride, the car rental, trying to find our way through Los Angeles, which was a whole nother thing, to hotel, <laughs> and then, and there's lots of this, like, are we there yet, where is it? Um, and I'm gonna be honest, it was painful. Like, it was really painful, and honestly, it wasn't that fun. But, what happens when you pull in to Disneyland? And those kids are like, oh! Behold the kingdom of the mouse, right? You see it in their eyes, like behold, look at this. That's what John is stopping to get us to notice. Look at this, think of this, the great love of God. Behold, what manner of love. And that's such an interesting verbal construction, what manner of love, because that literally means what foreign kind of love, from what country, from what race, from what tribe, what what faraway realm is this love from? 
So many of you might remember or be familiar with the story of the disciples when Jesus calms the sea in Galilee. It was a miracle. And this is what was said. What manner of man is this? It's like saying, you're not from around here, are you? You're not from this neighborhood. Are you some, from some faraway realm, a, a foreigner? Like what manner of man can do this? So put it this way, behold, what exotic, foreign to the human heart love God has for us. What kind of love is this that would forgive sinners and then make them children, sons and daughters of the living God? God's love is unique. God's love is otherworldly. It's foreign to the human experience. This is why it's foreign to the human experience. Human love is object-orientated. God's love is subject-orientated. So human love looks at an object or maybe a person and says, oh, she's beautiful, oh, he's handsome. That object pleases me. Or maybe it's an item that you want, an object you need. You know, it's based on its worth, on its value, on its beauty of the object. God's love is not that way. <laughs> it is subject oriented It is not based on the object, it is based on him. It's his nature. God is love. You don't deserve it, but we get it anyways. So questions that I have, have had over the years about love um, is when did this love begin? When did he begin loving me? And could the love ever end? Think about that just for a second. When did God start loving you? Was it the moment that you received Christ and God just stopped everything he was doing and said, oh, there you are, receiving me now, I'm gonna show my love to you. Or was it the day that you came in here and you recommitted and you had this full-hearted commitment and said, I am going to serve the Lord from this day forward? Did God then just find you completely irresistible and just start loving you? No, what the Bible tells us in Romans is, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So before the foundations of the earth, really, and then when you came on the scene and you were born and, and you were rebellious against him, turned away from him, guess what? He loved you. Let me ask you another question. Could there ever be something in your nature, in your character, in your behavior that would ever diminish God's love for you? Would he ever find something in you that would so disappoint him that he would finally say, I am done. I am done loving you. It's a question that Paul asked. He said, what shall separate us from the love of God? One of my favorite scriptures in Romans 8, verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
So John is saying, behold, what manner of love is this? So you might be watching TV or the radio and Taylor Swift is still trying to figure out her love story and John Mayer is singing, you love who you love who you love and Amy Winehouse is, Amy Winehouse is like singing love is a losing game. There's many different songs. John the Apostle is saying, I've discovered something that you need and that is the love of God. And these words from an old hymn called The Love of God by Frederick Lehman, it's beautiful poetry, says it so well. Could we with the ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were ever stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole through stre- those stretched from sky to sky. The love of God is greater far than a tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches the lowest of hell. All that is behind these words. Behold, what manner of love is this? God's love is incredible. Incredible. So our second feature, God's love is not only incredible, but it's consequential. Let me, underst- let me explain what I mean by that. Here we are, experiencing love of God. It's different than anything else, but we live in a bad neighborhood. And the neighbors in the neighborhood aren't going to appreciate the love that you are experiencing. Look at what John writes in the second part of this verse. Therefore, or because of that love, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now, The word know you can uh, substitute for understand. In many newer translations, that's what it would say. They don't understand. They don't get it. This love of God is so foreign to them, they just think you're a little kooky. You're a little weird, right? Christians have that rep. They just think that you've got your your head in the clouds, you're singing about God's love, right? Oh, I'm saved. And they think like, what in the world are you talking about? They just don't get it. They don't understand. I still remember the look on people's faces when I told them that I became a follower of Christ. I mean, it really was the last thing that anybody ever suspected or expected that would happen. And I remember going back to my friends and my family and I would tell them, you know, and most of their responses were pretty polite. They looked a little puzzled or they had that face, hmm, that's, that's nice. They didn't get it. One friend was very honest and said, why? Why in the world would you do that? Well, the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter, he's talking about how people used to hang out with a crowd that was into lust and immorality and drunkenness, wild parties, worship of idols. And then this is what he says in chapter four, verse four. Of course your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do, so they slander you. They think it's strange. I know that's what it was like for me. One of my friends that I used to party with when I was younger, we would go out and keep in mind, we had just partied together two days before that tells me all of a sudden that she is a Christian and started preaching to me. And I got mad at her, I got annoyed. I said like, excuse me, what could have possibly happened from yesterday to today? 
And she said, well, I'm glad you asked. So of course she tells me she went to youth group, she walked forward, she'd given her life to Jesus, and I'm different, just like that. And I'm here to tell you that you need to change, and I said, no. Nobody can change that fast, nobody. You don't have the right to change that fast. This was my friend. And it just totally threw me for a loop. Some versions say they think it's strange, or like this one said, they are surprised, right? But what's so interesting, though, is they don't think it's strange, or sorry, I didn't think it was strange when people ruin their lives with drugs and alcohol and lust. They don't think it's strange that people ruin their lives with immortality. They don't think it's strange that people ruin relationships, treat people awful, but they think it's really strange all of a sudden when I want to read the Bible and go to church. Like, what in the world has happened to you? Is it really that bad, Yasmin? Like, are you losing your mind? Is this your last thing that you can hold on to? Even the Apostle Paul, when he preached to the Romans and the court officials, they said, you're out of your mind to Paul. They think it's strange. So God's love, that's what I mean when I say it's consequential. Jesus even said that not only will they not understand it, they could hate you for it. Now I don't know about you and what you had in mind when you became a follower of Christ, what expectations you might have had in your life, uh, how it was gonna look to be a believer, to share the word to friends and family. But Jesus said this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world, will, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's a spiritual issue. See, Satan, who's called in the Bible the God of the world, hates Jesus. You happen to be in the crossfires because you're experiencing this amazing, exotic kind of love and you're telling people about it and they're seeing it in you and that starts to upset them and they get caught in this crossfire. You don't do what they do anymore. You don't think like they think anymore. You don't go where they go anymore. And they'll misinterpret this as some kind of superior complex. What, do you think you're better than me? It makes them feel guilty. And church, that should never ever be our intention when we talk about the gospel to our friends and family. I read an interesting little story about a fifth century philosopher from Athens. So hopefully I'm saying his name right. So Aristides, he was so moral, so just, that people started nicknaming him Aristides the Just. And it seems that people of Athens didn't like to call somebody just or holy or righteous, so much so that they banished him from Athens. That was their solution to get rid of him. So he doesn't stand among them and show them all up. I tell you that to say don't look for approval from this world because you're going to be awfully disappointed. So God's love is incredible, God's love is consequential, and now the third feature, God's love is eternal. 
beloved. I love that word. I know it's an old word, but I love that word. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, um, in other translations it would say appears, so this is the second coming of Christ, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In In other words, one day you will see Jesus yourself, face to face. And when you see him, you will be totally changed. You will have a makeover. Uh, And here's the point John's making. God's love, which you begin to experience in this life, will be there all the way until the return of Christ. And when you see him, you will be changed. You will be like him. You will see him as he is and it will be transforming. Every follower of Jesus Christ is in for an extreme makeover one day. And this is good news. This is great news. In Philippians 3.20 it says, but we are citizens of heaven and we can hardly wait for a savior from there. He is Lord Jesus Christ. He has the power to bring everything under his control. By his power he will change our earthly bodies. They will become like his glorious body. So I don't know about you, but I'm really stoked for the day that I no longer have back pain. Right? Or maybe it's knee pain for you, maybe it's sciatic pain, no more bad eyesight, no more wrinkles. I'm going to have an extreme makeover. So as a Christian, you're not what you used to be, thank God. You might not be what you want to be, but you're certainly not what you're going to be. And what you're going to be is you're going to have a glorified body. But not only that, you're going to have a purified character. The struggles that you have today with your old behaviors, the struggles that you have today with sin, the struggles, you won't have those struggles there. What is a process right now, this process of sanctification, will be an instant reality and accomplishment there. You'll have a glorified body, you'll have a purified character, but the most important, you will finally have a satisfied heart. Do you know that you'll never be totally fulfilled? Never be really satisfied until the day when you're in his presence and you see his face? That's where you will be satisfied and that will be your ah, ah moment. In Psalm 17, 15, it says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. I was visiting my nan's grave a while back and was walking through the, it was in the summer, I was walking through the cemetery and I found this on one gravestone. It just had his name, Psalm 17, 15, and one word, satisfied. So I immediately looked it up when I was there, pulled up this scripture, and it was like as if that man was saying, I'm finally satisfied, finally. Behold his face in his presence. So God's love isn't just this experience of the present, which is wonderful. It's this expression of our future. Do you know it's gonna take God all of eternity to fully reveal his love to you? 
In Ephesians, it says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, I will tell you this. This is, to me, one of the distinguishing factors of the Christian experience. It is one of the most remarkable things about a believer opposed to a non-believer. If you're not a believer, the most wretched experience I can possibly think of is growing old. Because you have nothing to look forward to. Nothing at all. It's hopelessness. You have only one way to look and it's backwards. All the comfort you had looking back on those wonderful, beautiful, blissful kind of moments, holding on to those memories from your past, And then of course there'd be unpleasant experiences too, right? Because there'd be unpleasant memories as well. But if you're a believer, no matter what memories are part of your past, good or bad, you look forward to the day where it says in Revelations that God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That there will be no pain and there will be no sorrow. God's love is eternal. And the last feature, God's love is practical. See, this is the best part to me. As incredible as the experience of knowing it and enjoying God's love, there's something very practical here. In verse three, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. People over the years have said to me, or I've heard it said about other Christians, that you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I'm sure you've all heard it in some shape or form, that type of language. But I've come to discover something. I've stopped getting offended by it. Because nobody's any earthly good until they are heavenly minded. And this is why I say that. You are earthly good when you realize that there's something more beyond earth, beyond you. And if you really believe that Jesus is coming back, and if I believe that when he returns, he's going to reward the just and punish the unjust, this should make a difference in your life. My belief should affect my behavior. If my behavior is not affected by my belief, you have every reason to question me, right? Every reason. Anybody can say, I believe, I believe, I believe. So the belief ought to affect the behavior. And if you really believe that this is going to happen, something occurs, change occurs. He purifies himself for me. One of the most purifying, most motivating, inspiring beliefs and truths is that Jesus Christ could come back at any moment. Pastor John talked about this in the last series, Things to Come. And John's writing these things so we're not deceived. Not to scare us, but to warn us. To speak truth into these people, into us. We don't know when he will return, but he will return. So I don't know about you, have you ever said or heard, wait till your father gets home? Maybe you haven't said it, but maybe when you were young, you were a little extra rowdy, a little awful to your mother, and she just smiled at you and said, your father will be home soon. 
and not out of fear that he would hurt you, but of mispl- like not pleasing him, that fear. Bailey and Paige, when they were little, uh, I used to work very early in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, and so they had to get themselves ready for school and get out the door. Bailey hated getting her hair brushed. When I say hated, that's an understatement. Like, straight out fit, freaking out. So Paige would often call me at work, which I wasn't allowed to have phone calls at work, and saying, crying on the phone, I can't get her out the door, she won't let me brush her hair, and they're freaking out on the phone. So I talked to her dad about it, because I was like, I can't deal with this, I'm gonna get trouble at work, she's gotta stop calling me. So he said, tell Bailey, that if she's not going to behave, that he will leave his job and come and brush her hair, and then she could go to school. Bailey was terrified. Terrified. And not because he ever hurt her, and not because he didn't love her. She loved him and respects him so much that not wanting to please him hurt her because it hurt him. Say it like this, a young teenager girl goes out one night with her friends, okay? She gets into the car, the friend shows up and says, let's party, let's go out and just get wasted. And she said, nope, I won't do that. And the friend looks back at her and says, well, why? Are you scared of your dad? Are you scared that he's gonna ground you, maybe hurt you? And she said, no, I'm scared that I'll hurt my dad different motivation, total different motivation. We don't know when, but just around the corner, one day, our Savior is coming back. Keep yourself for him. Worship band, you can come up. Let his love in. Let all of this in to every nook and cranny and broken place and every place that you don't wanna let him in. Just let him all in, all of it. His love is unique, and it's uniquely satisfying. It's forever, and it's the most practical truth to guide your life. You may stand. We are gonna pray, and we're gonna go into a time of worship, reflection, and maybe you can really think what that means and and how that could change your life, right? What if you let him in completely, like absolutely completely to everything? What if it changed everything that you did and said and where you went? Let's pray. Father God, we're about to close and we're going to close where we started in prayer and and in worship and right now Father I just ask that everybody here examines their hearts examines their lives their things around them we're in this building where songs are being sung and, and truths are being read but it will make absolutely no difference in our lives unless we grab a hold of that truth and cooperate with your work Holy Spirit thank you for your love the most unique and amazing and I can't even explain it love 
And I pray that we could show this in some small way to people in our lives, like our family members, our friends, people we work with. And Father, as people are hearing this message, many of them know you personally, and they walk with you, and they have a real experience of faith. But Lord, for others, it's sketchy. Some aren't certain if they're saved, if they can trust you. They don't, they don't know. But Father, you're calling us to step out of this shadow, out of the dark and into the light so we can experience that kind of love that cannot be experienced on a human level anywhere else with anything or any person except in you. And if we haven't done that, if we have, abso we have absolutely nothing to lose to make that decision today, nothing but gain. So I pray for all of the people that are gathered here today, Father, all those online in this building who have been teetering with this idea of following you or not, others who have wandered away and need to come back to their first love, others who have yet to even accept you, I ask that you speak to them right now. And I pray, Father, for each of these people, the men, the women, the young, the old, so many different backgrounds and experiences and stories, we have something in common. We are children of God. We are yours. We all need you. We all need your forgiveness. We all need your love. So just reveal it to each and every one of them here today, Father, in some profound, fresh way. And I ask that you meet them where they're at wherever that is, that you meet them where they're at. And I pray that their lives from this day forward will be drastically different, drastically different. And Father, I just pray that we make you the king of our lives and that that affects every single thing we do and think and say and everything. I thank you for your church. I thank you that I get the honor of standing here and saying your name out loud. Don't let us forget that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.